Blog Talk Radio. Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. I have the great pleasure of having Bracken Cracker with me today. Looking forward to having this conversation with him. I'd like to believe that of all the pros that are out there in the sport, he seems to have a pretty strong handle on the need and understanding of sports performance. And I'm talking about the the details at hand as opposed to just getting out there like a rabbit and chasing these guys down. So, Bracken, thanks so much for doing the show with me. Absolutely, Richard. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure, my friend. So I I gave you a list, and on the list, the first thing that I came up with, and as we spoke of just a few minutes ago, I want to talk to you about running speed and the importance of running speed and running mechanics in the sport of obstacle course racing. Talking my language here. Yeah, I know. And I know you come from a collegiate background, and you were like a middle-distance runner, so yeah. so this is right up your alley, right? Yeah, it, it is. So talk to me a little bit about your history in collegiate running. All right, well, I I was kind of a, I was absolutely a late bloomer. I was born with uh, no foot speed, um, but, I, but I was very good laterally. And so that led to a lot of different sports and eventually got to college and running was the only thing left I could do at that level. So that's, that's really when I started to delve into the, the technical side of running. Up to that point, it was just a, a sport to fill in the other two seasons in my year. I immediately gravitated towards middle distance because I just did not have an aerobic engine built up at all. And so throughout college, I ran the 800 meters, probably should have been a miler, but we, we trained more of like a 400, 600 type athlete. So we just did a lot of high intensity intervals and you can't do that without building speed. And eventually I developed a little bit better foot speed than I'd had. And that carried over into a lot of my philosophy on on that speed is an important building block of an endurance athlete. Very good. I know you're geeky enough to appreciate the type of conversation we're going to have. And what I'm suggesting is, for example, when I talk about the difference between linear and nonlinear periodization training, Mm-hmm. A lot of guys are still chasing this old school mentality of linear periodization where in the early stages of their season of training, they put a lot of build together where they're really focusing on aerobic almost exclusively. Correct. And I've really had a hard time with that over the years because I find that it really destroys your fitness. By the time you get to a place where you bring up the intensity and then you focus exclusively on progressive intensity, you start to lose your aerobic potential. 
I agree. And so I've always told told people that I like to see them keep about 20% of their training volume should be dedicated to, this is kind of a caveat to typical speed mentality, but I call it motor skill development. And in the course of motor skill development, of course, because you're getting to speed, it's more akin to developing speed than just ambiguous workouts where you're throwing yourself around the track at 400 as hard as you can. Yeah. I, I'm on board with you. I just, I, I'm a little bit less technical and of a scientist as you just because that hasn't been my, my background. But I, I always equate things to other sports. And when I look at people who neglect everything but aerobic development for months at a time, it, to me it would be like a basketball player who stops shooting in the offseason. Right. You, you can't just simply add something back in and expect everything to go smoothly. I, I don't understand the, the desire for people to lose touch with important running skills in the name of growing their engine bigger. Well, and then the other end of it is, just kind of going back to just simple terms, you look at any finish pitcher. You know, every finish line's got a photographer that's taking a picture of you crossing the line. With the obviously the difference with OCR because you're jumping over a fire pit, that's obviously going to screw you up. But if you look at like the people running a marathon, a 10K, what have you, and they got a guy that takes a picture of you, your form is crap when you're crossing the line. And the reason is because you're doing everything you can to go as fast as you can when you smell the barn, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so this is traditionally what occurs with most people when they try to pass somebody or try to catch somebody or try to evade somebody is they just start pushing really hard and dispatch any concern of the way they're moving and the cost factor goes way up. They start overstriding heavily. They probably start heel striking and then they start tossing their body up in the air. Their their arm swing is all kittywampus and just everything goes badly. And even though you're working harder, it's actually costing you more to do what you're doing and you're probably slowing down. Absolutely. So I guess I guess I'm probably the biggest geek you might ever meet in respect to running mechanics. I believe that you have no business running faster or putting more intensity or volume into your training program unless you've pretty much mastered your ability to run with good form. Yeah. And so I find that when I help people to get better with the way they move, that it opens the floodgates to performance. They end up running better. They can run longer. They can run more economically and they are less prone to injury, which is really, at the end of the day, you know how it works. The volume goes up, the injuries show up, right? Absolutely. Anyway, uh, I like the idea that you had spoke of these strides and the importance of getting up to speed briefly, which is really akin to what I do. So we're, we're brethren in respect to the way we approach it, but it, I think the end game is pretty much the same. Yeah, I think that if you are not able to approach your top end speed efficiently with a without changing to an entirely different stride that you're not used to, that you're not maximizing your ability and that you have you're gonna have some some weaknesses up and down your chain that are going to show up as fatigue hits you. Well, what I see typically with guys that run hard, incidentally, the stronger you are, the greater potential you are to injure yourself because mm-hmm. you're more powerful. You could put more stress on the tendons and ligaments and and musculature. So I see a lot of glute issues. Insertion of the hamstring under the glute seems to be a hot spot for guys that really overstride hard and paw the ground really, really hard. They tend to hurt themselves. And the novices tend to jack their knees up 
because their stability has gone out the window and they collapse. We're kind of kicking a dead horse here, but at the end of the day, it resonated with me that you were looking at the importance of doing these strides in your workout and doing these high-intensity efforts regardless of where you are in your season. I think to give it a percentage, I, I, I like to see people do a minimum of 20% of motor skill development at least until a point in the training where they're comfortable enough and have the capacity to run with pretty much impeccable form. Yes. Cool. We're on the same page with that. So let's take a, a complete left turn here. And this is something I'm sure is on your mind a lot. And as I suggested to you earlier, the definition of a professional in my mind is someone that makes a living doing something, opposed to someone that is just a recreational athlete, for example, and has a day job. Yes. Obstacle racing in the world of sport seems to be struggling at the moment with earning legitimacy as a full-fledged professional sport. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts about what the hiccups are on that path, but I would think that one of them, and having talked to some other athletes I know from other sports that are professionals, they feel that the, the fact that there's no drug testing in the sport is a big deal. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty outspoken, I would guess, and in firm where I stand. And I, I believe that the drug testing is just absolutely necessary before we can move forward as a sport. Um, a lot of people like to say that our sport's too young to have a drug issue. And I think that that is 100% wrong. We are a sport made up of other sports. We, I mean, what, what do we draw from? Cycling, running, triathlon. We have some swimmers, some fighters. Can you think of a handful of more dope sports than those? Well, even uh, CrossFit, for example. Oh, absolutely. CrossFit is rampant. And so we take, we take pre-existing athletes. It's not like we just woke up one morning and decided to be an athlete and joined OCR. People were already doing their own thing. And so these issues exist. And we have had interactions with people in the sport that have, you know, shed some light on some pre-existing athletes who are well-established in the sport who are doping. And the only thing you can do is join the ranks of modern-day sports and drug tests. Now, that doesn't solve anything. Everyone knows it's an IQ test. But the threat of it can at least start the process of people backing away from what they're doing. Maybe. Well, yeah. I guess the reason I even brought it up is there was someone that was, was uh, posting some comments and queries on social media recently about his inability to get into an elite heat at a race. Yeah. And he is considered an elite athlete, and there's just no control over it. I would imagine there's a lot of guys out there and girls out there that may get into an elite heat because it's more convenient to race earlier in the day and or they just want that photo op. They want to be able to be out there in the front for that moment with the pros to to get that. I mean, I, I might you know piss some people off by saying it, but I just think that well beyond your hope to win an event, mm -hmm. you have ulterior motives to be in that heat and you really don't belong there if you are dehorsing someone that potentially was going to be competitive because there's just no more room, that's just not right. Yeah. Well, I, have, I have two takes on this. The first, it's funny that this came up this week because in Montana, I filmed a couple of Monday minutes. It's a, it's a little series Joe DiStefano does for Spartan training. Right. And one of them was on start line etiquette. So it's, 
I think it's going to come out sometime soon this week, so it'll be funny that it'll address that problem. But uh, two things about the start line. One is that as of right now, there seems to be an issue of, just like you said, people want to get in in order to be there, not necessarily because they are chasing the podium spot. But the, the alternate side of this is that from, and I'm sure you've seen it in your experience, if you are a good enough athlete, rules will bend for you. And right now I know for a fact that if you are a top 50 in the rankings of Spartan Race, that they will pull strings to get you into a sold-out heat. So it's kind of, this you know might hurt some egos, but if you are good enough to be there, someone will make sure that you're there. On the other hand, there should be a qualification standard for a cash heat. There's no reason we can't look at yeah, last year's rankings, your current performance this year, and even for newcomers, some sort of standard having completed um, a sprint, triathlon, an Olympic distance, a half marathon, 10K, whatever it is, in a certain um, qualification standard that would guarantee you entry into any elite heat. Well, I think that the best thing to do I know that you participated in the West Coast Combine. I'm the reigning champion, Richard. <laughs> well, there you go. You know, you gotta you gotta forgive me because I'm old and I forget stuff, right? And that's all right. Yeah, but I was there, and uh, you know, come to think of it, yes, I do recall that you did win that uh, West Coast Spartan Combine. But I thought that that was a really smart thing to do in the sport, and I mm-hmm. think it's all around. There's just scads of benefit that comes from doing a combine. And I think it's not only good for regulating the sport, but from a standpoint of giving opportunity to the athletes to be exposed to potential sponsorships. I would think the thing to do, and I hope guys that are involved in this are listening, is that you have regional combines twice a year, one at the very beginning of the year, northeast, south, and west, and then one maybe late spring for a second shot to get ranked. And then you invite potential high-caliber sponsors, just like scouts for the NFL or the NBA, and they show up and they they just basically can see who has uh, the ability to perform best. And I think it's also great for the athletes to get a sense of what their competition looks like. I really like that idea. And I actually read uh, your post on that the other day. But since the inception of the combine, one thing has jumped out at me, though. And that's that if you took the top, let's say, 10 or 15 women, 15 men in the sport, and threw them in a combine with the masses, you might have half of them that can't go top 50. Take a look at maybe, uh, let's say, Cody or... um, uh, let's see, let's take a woman, let's say Chikorita on the women's side. Those two athletes may not do well in the Hercoist. They may not do well in the Atlas Stone Carry. They may not do well in Walls for Time. And yet, because they are such head and shoulders above people aerobically, they go out there and they win races. And so we'd almost have to add a little something to the combine in order to identify those freak outliers that are going to be dominant, even though they don't check all the physical toolboxes. Well, I, th- there you go. So the thing to do, I would think, I think we should do this, me and you. We'll, we'll, we'll set up the combine. We'll do a private agency combine. We'll just set I already up. have it sketched out. <laughs> but what you do is you set up 
a hill running competition. Mm-hmm. And then what you start doing is you rank the individual obstacles and events and make some of them heavier in points than others. Because I think you would agree, and I think you just said it, that it's very, very important to have running skills in this sport. You know, where you got a guy that maybe isn't big enough to do well in something like a stone carrier or a hoist or whatever, but just will blaze the trail. It, that's the deciding factor. So you just you just lay some points on it. So you get absolutely. You know, and I love the idea of weighting uh, the different the different exercises differently. Yeah. Well, I think uh, it becomes a function of time is the way you do it. Yeah. And again, I'm a geek and I I don't participate in this sport, but I'll I'll actually time how long the average athlete gets across a rig. And, we have a lot in common, Richard. I have yeah. a chart where if I'm not at a race. <laughs> I'll time uh, the top 20 people's bar wire crawl and everything and find out what percentage of their overall time is being spent on obstacles to try to find out what percent of your overall training time should be devoted towards them. That's exactly the way to do it. That's exactly the way to do it. We are brethren. Absolutely. Uh, why, why work all day long on one obstacle if you can only gain 0.2% of a increase? You know? Right. No, no question about it. And that's like spending about 85% of your uh, training program on grip strength. Yeah. You know, I mean, to some extent, that's got a diminishing return. Yeah. If, you, if you're running Battle Frog, maybe you devote some more time. But at the end of the day, if you can get through a rig four seconds faster than somebody, but he beats you by 22 seconds over the previous mile, it doesn't matter. That's right. That's absolutely right. So there, there's the solution, I think, is that yeah. it's all going to be regulated by a combine. And then what you do is you invite sponsors to show up, and they get to look, they get to take notes, and they could just start making a decision. And if they want to organize some interviews post-combine with the athletes to decide whether they can cut a deal that makes sense, there you go. I like that idea. Yeah. yeah. So I have one other, and maybe it's in conjunction with this, but I have one other idea for maybe regulating a bit. And this kind of kills drug testing and uh, sorting out the corrals in one stone. And that is the idea of the triathlon pro card. And that we sort the elite heat out even further into the elite heat and the pro heat. The pro heat is the heat that competes for money. But to get into that, you need to be registered with a pro card. There you go. And, and each pro has to, because, I mean, if you consider yourself a professional athlete, um, one podium would make up for the cost of, of buying your pro card. But that cost that every athlete has to incur goes directly towards uh, the drug testing process. Because one of the, the, the responses you always get from an organization is it's just too expensive. It's not feasible to do for every athlete. And I think if we could take a little bit of that cost on ourselves and as a show of good faith, you could kind of kill two birds with one stone. Hmm. And there'd be obviously qualifications athletically to get your pro card. And maybe that's tied into combined results. Yep. You know, you'd have someone like Lance Armstrong coming over. You could probably, you could probably uh, just grandfather him in a pro card. He's established himself as a endurance athlete. And, or maybe you, you make them run their first as elite and not as the pro. But I think there's definite ways that you can combine a combine into a established card that it's a gold pass through any door into any, any way. You know, it's interesting you bring him up, given that he just got through racing in an OCR event. Yeah, I had mixed feelings about it, and I don't know. I mean, 
I tr- I've tried to stay out of the politics of this type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, Lance, so I don't like to judge. And what I've told people, I think once I got on Twitter and made some comments because some guys were bagging on them. And, and I said, you know, th- for the amount of evil that was created and all that, there was so much good that came of it that it far outweighs whatever it is that he might have done wrong. I mean, you think of the money that was raised for cancer research. It was all based on his Live Strong project. I just, like, you almost got to forgive him, you know, but I don't know. I, just, I was so torn. Yeah. I, at one point, <laughs> we were in a meeting with NBC and Spartan. At one point, they, I said, you know what? A lot of athletes probably will refuse to race if he comes in, and I might even be one of them. And then a few few days later, I thought, man, could I be any more completed here? Like, this is a sport of rebirth. Every single one of us is in here because we couldn't cut it somewhere else. This is our athletic second chance, and we have a lot of personal demons that get sorted out here. We have a lot of addictions, divorces, um, you know, even run-ins with the law that people use this as their rebirth. Who would I be to say you can't come in and start over and work on your public image here? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, I just, you know, at the end of the day, and I've probably said this too many times, but at the end of the day, if I was a professional cyclist or I've worked with, listen, I've worked with all kinds of athletes over, over mm-hmm. the last 30 years. I worked with professional boxers, world champions, NFL, NBA. Uh, I worked with all of them. And when the money gets that big, I got to tell you, I think I'd probably pull the trigger on whatever I needed to in order to keep that money coming. Uh, if somebody looked at me and said, well, look, we're going to give you $15 million uh, over the next five years, but you got to get your game up. And I knew the only thing that was between me and that $15 million and, and living the lifestyle that, that these guys can live was getting on board with what everybody else was doing. Forget mm-hmm. about cheating because it's kind of even in the playing field if you think about it. And yeah, and I – I get it. I I would like to say that I would not make that decision, but I completely get it because it's it's a reality. I've had some friends that got into the, to the the Olympic Training Center for cycling and got into certain levels, and you get to a point, and it's just a way of life. Yep. And that's not good, but it's the reality. It's it's get with the program or go home. Yeah. And some of my friends have got with the program, and some went home, and. I'll never judge them for it because it's it's a different situation there. Personally, yeah. I can't I can't justify it. Right. But, well, but I mean, a, yeah, I'm, I'm at a different place where it's it for me it'd be less about getting with it and more about the moral stance. But but again, I get it. There's there's no reason for most people not to. Yeah. And that's a sad it's a sad statement to make that we're to that point in sports, but. That's the reality. Yeah. Every sport, the top is just laden with it. Right. Well, I got to tell you, uh, I got into organized sport with triathlon in the early '80s, and I actually produced and directed the first pro triathlon in the United States for CBS Sports in 19, really? 1984 on the, island, on the island of Kauai, and and uh, so there's a story behind this. Um, I also owned the Maui Triathlon at that time and had owned it for uh, three or four years and then disbanded the whole thing after a while. But 
all of the pros in the sport, and pros, uh, I have to use the term loosely because they were not earning a living. There was no money in the sport yet. Mm-hmm. But, for example, Scott Tinley, Scott Molina, these guys that were winning Ironman, Dave Scott, all these guys were competing in my event, the events, I should say. They started out in my earlier event. And um, I have video of three of the top athletes in the sport at the time cutting the course in the water, going around the inside of a buoy as opposed to going around the outside of the buoy mm-hmm. on video. It was on television. And nobody, like, raised a hand and DQ'd them. And they looked at me like, you know, keep your mouth shut because you can't just kick these guys out because if you do, they'll never come back to your, your event. And so you're right. You know, there's a lot of favoritism that goes off at the top end of the sport. You want to be careful what happens, especially as an event producer. You know, there's always a little bit of corruption going on. Sometimes it seems like it's light-handed, and sometimes it's, like, really catastrophic. But anyway, for whatever it's worth, I think that uh, I would like to see the sport get get legitimate. And I think that what's going to really make a big difference is if they get a – an opening shot invitation to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And in that case, what do you think is going to be the distance that they're going to want to allow? All right. So this is interesting. Uh, I just spent the weekend at the Fort Carson Spartan race. I did not race, but it's 10 minutes from my house. And this it turned out, this was a week where Spartan was just pretty much in bed with the Olympic committee all week. They had functions every day and they brought the modern pentathlon laser pistol to the race as an obstacle. And they brought some members of the Olympic team to oversee that and some coaches. And they had Olympic committee members at the race all day long. Uh, They had a little VIP section set up where, you know, Joe DeSena flew in from wherever he is, Thailand or wherever to do this. It was a big deal. And they, it was kind of under wraps, but it was, it was happening. And I was fortunate enough to be able to, to meet and greet a bunch of these guys and pick their brain and do some interviewing about it. And the push is happening quicker than I imagined. I thought we were kind of blowing smoke for a while, but they are, they are doing a lot behind the scenes. And it seems like to answer your question, there is the possibility of two distances. They are, they are targeting sports that we are similar to. So they're looking at modern pentathlon and biathlon. And the idea of the biathlon style, some, something between 10 and 15K with multiple loops through off-road terrain where you keep passing back through a spectator area is one style that seems very realistic. And then I don't even know if I can say this yet, but we're going to because I'm excited about it. They are working on a short course offering that may even be the go-to. Um, it looks like 1,000 meters on a track with the first half of the race run in the outside four lanes, next half in the inside four lanes. And those are the two formats that they're looking at. One very controlled, very um, compact and exciting. The other one, your standard endurance race. And they're looking at a whole lot of standardization, um, hence the use of a pentathlon pistol, um, in order to increase our legitimacy so that we can get these tracks greased and rolling. Wow. Wow, that's pretty interesting. It's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. So you just never know. It just really gets down to appeal. I mean, because at the end of the yeah. day, the Olympics are all about what the consumers want to see, right? So here's the interesting thing. 
I always thought we didn't have a chance. And if it happened, it would have to be like 30 years down the road. But then I was talking with a couple of guys. I was talking with a pentathlete, actually. And he's the number one pentathlete, or modern pentathlete in the U.S. He competed in the last Olympics. He's going to Rio. He can't make a living off this. Uh, nobody knows his name. And we started talking, and he said, name four Olympic sports right now where you know two or more athletes' names. <laughs> and I'm a little different than, I think, the average consumer. Right. Um, but I got his point right away that you remember whoever they choose to push for that cycle and then you have no idea who the next crop is. That's and you right. don't know, all these sports are obscure sports. We think of ourselves as a fringe sport, but what about curling? You know, what about modern pentathlon? What about uh, badminton? I, I don't think anyone could name a single person. And yet we have a sport that's already televised that drew 400,000 viewers on our last episode. And we have people who are starting to get recognized in public. We have athletes who are already making a living off this. We have a sport that could actually bring something of value to the Olympics. And that's kind of crazy to think about, that that gives us a leg up on competition, simply having an established show, an audience, and athletes who might have some name recognition. Well, that's the most critical component of the whole process. Is Yeah, it's a business at the end of the day. Oh, yeah. It's about media recognition. And then when you get the attention, like NBC has, has shown quite a lot of love to the sport, and I'm sure they're not doing it just because they love it. They're doing it because they know they can make money at it. Yeah. And you have the Spartan team show coming out soon. That yep. is trying to capitalize on Ninja Warrior audience. That is a huge audience to bring in. Right. We, we have we have some momentum, I think. Yep. Well, that's going to be good. And I think it's going to be – it's funny because, you know, I had an interview with Amelia Boone. Uh, it was probably several months ago. But – you know, knowing that she has a professional career, which takes precedence over her competition, I asked her, I said, if someone was to walk up to you tomorrow and hand you a check for $5 million for you to walk away from your your day job, would you dedicate yourself as a full-time athlete and, and go into the sport, you know, full bore? And she laughed and she said no. She said, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. But she said that she had so much invested in her education, but she just was not ready. Did to, she have five million invested in her education? <laughs> she was so um, she was so I think not ready to believe that the thing is actually going to get that to that point in her competitive era. Yeah, and uh, you know what, Amelia's a an outlier both as an athlete and as a person. She's a very unique. Yeah. Well. But I, I'm, I'm with you. I think that if somebody handed her five million bucks, she'd walk away in a heartbeat. I'm looking. I, I walked away from my job for the chance to maybe replace the income. Yeah. So you're a full-time athlete now. Yeah. This is going on year three of doing this full-time. Good now I, I supplement with, uh, with, with coaching. Right. Um, but. Well, that's the way it works. I think. Yeah, I think that's. You look at any other burgeoning sport or endurance sport, and every athlete's that every athlete that's capable of coaching is coaching. Right. So let's talk about your coaching. How much coaching are you doing? Uh, well, up until this past week, I've tried to keep it to 12 athletes or less because I like to provide um, as much day-to-day, back-and-forth, constant updating of schedules and communication as I can. I like the, I like the personalized um coach athlete relationship rather than send out a standardized training block and, and have that be the day. 
But um, we actually just I partnered with two guys out of Virginia, um, a, a website builder and a, a coach out there, and we launched an online platform this week. Oh, good. And it's going to uh, make everything much more streamlined, and it will allow me to go outside of my, my 12-person group. Well, that's, you know, that there lies the rub, right? Being able to do enough of it for, for, for it to make sense. Yeah. And I, I'm the same way. You know, again, man, we, we should go have drinks. We should. Monterey. <laughs> that's exactly right. I'm planning on being there. Um, but I, I'm in the same boat. I, I'm right now, I think I have about 17 athletes that I work with. And like you, Day one in my letter to them, I tell them that my mama told me the squeaky wheel gets the grease. If they have yeah. issues at all, whenever, any questions, to reach out to me immediately. And then if necessary, we'll have a phone conversation about it. If capable, we'll try to solve the problem via communication, email, messaging, whatever it is. But I try to make myself available as best I can because – I don't believe in scripting, just throwing something out there and hoping it sticks and then, you know, have no interaction with somebody. The obvious concern there is that aside from the amount of time that you have to dedicate, the amount of money that you really need to charge them for it to make sense. And, yeah. and it's like it, that's a sticky wicket, too, because realize that most of the athletes you're dealing with, for the most part, aren't making a living in the sport. And, you know, they've got their own justifications to make, right? Yeah, to give the benefits that they need, you got to be charging an astronomical price, but it's just not possible in our sport right now. Right. Well, I used to work with professional boxers. That was great. Yeah. I'm telling you right now, if I could do that for a living, all exclusively, I'm in. You'd never see me again unless you go to a fight. That'd be the way to go. <laughs> because they go into a fight and they've got this stipend once they've signed a contract to fight somebody. And there's just like, the money is like candy. They just throw it around and it's just that Mayweather heaven, right? Absolutely. Amazing. Amazing for an athlete. Well, you look at guys like uh, Freddie Roach, who uh, coached Pacquiao and so many others, and he gets 10% of their purse. Obviously enough, over the course of the career of a Pacquiao, Freddie's probably made $100 million. Absolutely. That's where where I want to be. (laughs) Plus, he didn't have to do any drugs. That's right. All right, so let's talk about uh, this next race coming up, which is the uh, Spartan NBC event, which is going to be in Monterey, California. Yes, sir. And I don't know how you feel about it, but I'm going to ask you anyway. You got a target on somebody's back? You know what? There are, and this came up recently, there are a lot of guys who like to say, you know what, I race because I love to race, and I don't race any one individual. And uh I, there's some merit to that, but I also think it's at some point a little bit a line of BS because we're out there to beat every single person we're racing. So yeah, I I, I have a target on on a lot of people, and and mine tend to to shift. And I, I don't think it's shameful to say that you're targeting an athlete because let's be honest, there are a lot of long days of training you need to be thinking about someone to get through that day. Right. So it's like um, a beauty contest when they ask them what they want to do for world peace and what have you. You know. Yeah. Yeah, let, let's let's be real for a second. At the um, end of the day, I want to beat the bitch sit standing next to him, right? Absolutely, and you take <laughs> pride in doing that. So, um, my target shifts though. It tends to be the person who's beat me more re- most recently, or whoever's the hot name right now. 
So like right now, your boy Hunter has a target on his back. Right. Because Hunter beat me very convincingly in Temecula, and I don't know if he's lost this year. So, well, um, he's. I'm going to see him tomorrow. Yeah. We're going to do some work tomorrow, and he's racing this weekend. He's going to do a uh, uh, Xterra race, trail race. That incidentally, he won pretty convincingly not that long ago, 21K. Yeah. He just smoked this race and set a course record. He would have been in Montana had he not gone to that Camp Kokoro. Right. Hunter uh, and I talk a bit. Yeah. So, uh, Hunter's a I'll, great guy. I mean, i got to tell you, um, he has no malice towards anybody in, in competition. No. And, and people a lot of times, you know, because he plays the heel role really well on social media. Right. People don't understand who Hunter actually is. I, I tell anyone who will listen to this, but uh, after our daughter was born, Hunter was the first person to call me and congratulate me. And that kind of just sums up who he was. We hadn't put anything on social media. He just, he was aware of our process and he called. Um, he's, he, he is not the heel that he loves portraying. <laughs> no, he's pretty, uh, he, he's pretty conscientious. Uh, across the board he's always been that way with me and uh you know that's why i work with him to be honest with you is is, yeah. is that uh, uh i enjoy working with him and he's a hard worker and it's fun to watch him do what he can do so i i uh i think he's going to be a threat i think he's going to be a threat across the board uh in monterey and well, well hunter's always been that physical outlier where he's kind of a freak of nature and now it seems that he he's kind of swung into that area of really solid, intelligent training as well. And that's a dangerous combination. Well, last year with that boundless program that he was involved in, it just made, it just played havoc in his training. Mm -hmm. And it was just ridiculous. He, he would tell me, he goes, look, Richard, you got to help me get to this place. And I said, okay, let's get it on, you know, let's do it. And then he sends me this little email that's, that shows all these holes where he's going to be, in France, then he's going to be in Scotland, and he's going to be in Chile, and I'm like, when the hell are we going to get any training done? Yeah. So people thinking that he was just kind of off the radar, he well he was, but uh, I don't think he really had much control over the way he was able to train last year. But you're right, he's he's gotten he's learned from a lot of those experiences, and he's gotten better at what he does. And when we get together, as much as it seems like fun and games, there's a lot of thought going into the things we're doing. And I, I'm telling you, he, he surprises the hell out of me every time we train together. Well, and I can see your thought behind the work when we race. So in Temecula, he made a, he made a move um, when we were getting to the top of the hill, very, very tired. And he made a very smooth, powerful acceleration. And his form uh, was as crisp. And as piston-like as I've ever seen it, and you right away, I just thought, "Oh wow, this—he has put in the work." Yeah. And and it's very because he's always had kind of a gangly stride, and it's cleaning up. And he is—it's scary when you take that engine and you add some precision to it. All right. So, like, let's just say that we're in Vegas and we're we're going to bet, and we're going to bet a lot. Yeah. Where would you see first, second, and third? Step outside yourself for a minute and just say. Yeah, no, I always like there. making predictions as if I'm not there. So um, I, I think Rob Killian, Hunter, and Cody Motes are the three guys to beat. Now, Cody, Cody, I'm, I'm, I'm just fully aboard the Cody train. 
I go into every race thinking it's Cody's race to lose. He wins it if he doesn't mess up an obstacle. Well, that's, uh, that's how Hunter I beat Hunter beat Cody race last race. Six, sorry, the caveat is any race longer than six miles. Okay. I know Hunter uh, managed to beat him in a clean race in Arizona, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. And he told me he had to work his butt off to do it. Mm-hmm. He said it was just the hardest thing he'd ever done is to try to get past Cody. Yeah. So those three, Hunter, Cody, and Rob Killian, I think are the most dangerous. But you've got we have a we have some parody starting to form up here where you've got a slew of guys who are always going to be in mix. You've got Ryan Kent, Ryan Atkins, uh, Chad Trammell. Chad Chad will be dangerous on this kind of course. Um, just, uh, and I know I'm going to forget about people. Oh, John Yasko, if yeah. he's at all fit, Johnny immediately jumps up to Cody ranks. So. We're going we're gonna to see. But I, if I was betting, it would be those three. Well, Ryan won that stadium race recently, right? And he, he yeah. beat Yasko, right? Yeah. So so Yasko is coming off some tendon damage in his ankle and has had no real quality training. Hmm. So it was a great win for Kent, but uh, Yasko is probably at half strength right now. So where do you fit into all this? I've kind of in the past been – I like considered myself the best of the rest where I'd, I'd lead the charge where if so one of those top few screwed up, I was going to sneak in and nab his, his podium spot. But I put in my first off-season of my life, and I've had 12 months uninterrupted training. I'm in a good spot right now. So I placed myself right up in that pack where instead of shooting to stay in contact and, and kind of nab a, a podium spot if people screw up, I, I'm racing to win each race this year. Cool. Well, I'm now, glad you brought that up, by the way. That you the took downside a, is that it's a little long for me. Right. You had mentioned uh, that you took a year to train. Yeah. And you had mentioned off-season, which was something that we were ranting about pretty heavily last year around November, was the importance of taking on an off-season and actually taking that time to, I mean, even if it's just a month or so, breaking things down, honing your skills, looking at the weaknesses and really start to uh, reinvest in yourself physically as opposed to just looking for the next race. And I've often told guys that racing is not the same as training. And just racing all the time is not going to make you a better athlete. No, we we have a sport that people like to race too often. Well, I talked to Benny Gifford. We did a show last week. And he had suggested to me that he has – come to grips with the reality that he can't be effective unless he races like one race a month is what he's going to try to do now. Yeah. As opposed to doing several. Yeah. That's that kind of that maturity process of, you know, someone like Benny didn't have that uh, competitive background as an endurance athlete. You know, you jump into a sport, you get gung ho about it and then you learn. And I think Benny's coming around full circle here. Right. Well, and then looking at the women, uh, Lindsay Webster, having come out of a, another sport, as you suggested, coming out of cycling, she's got the acumen. She has the training knowledge that has, I think, helped to set her apart from some of those that don't have that history. Yeah. And she's also um, in a unique opportunity where she's good enough that not every race for her has to be all out. She gets to go to some battle frogs and run a very controlled effort. And she's not she's not digging to places where she's taxing her body and doing lasting damage. Right. 
Well, I talked to Ryan, and by the way, you didn't bring him up in the in the fray here, and I know he's going to be there. No, I I included him with the with that second group of guys that uh, Ryan Atkins. Yeah, yeah, I said Kent and Atkins. Okay, I'm sorry. And he's he's a threat to win any of them, but uh, I think that if we were talking Battle Frog, I'd pick him 99% of the time. But in Spartan, there's just it's a little different setup of the race. And while he just proved in Montana he can win at any given moment, um, again, if we're talking money, I'd put it on the other three. And then Hobie called to speed him. Yeah, yeah, he did. We didn't he bring he him caught up. Ryan at the perfect time in in, in the season. He's another dark horse, right? Hobie's never, every time you write him off, he throws together this awesome training block and comes in and dusts everyone. Right. So let's talk about the women's field. What do you think? Um, I'm, I'm a big believer in Lindsay Webster. She's, she's just that good. And she, she was raw last year. I think she's only getting better. So I think she might just be my standing pick to win everything for the rest of like this decade. Yeah. De- but, decade? <laughs> yeah. I'm, you know, maybe a little overzealous there. Uh, you, you can't ever count Rose out, but she's she's so diverse in her competitions right now that she may be a victim of her own uh, multifaceted talent. Yeah. Rose is that excitable little puppy, and that's that's her strength, and that's also you know what keeps her from focusing on one thing. Well, I like Rose a lot, and she's coming. Yeah. I've worked with her a few times, and and. Um... Uh, she's just a physical machine. She's just really, really strong for she a woman is. her size. Yeah. And so I wouldn't count her out either. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say it's gonna be similar to Montana. I think uh, Faye Stenning from Canada and uh, Lindsay Webster from Canada as well are uh, might be the class of the field right now. I think one of my my uh, sticking points right now. I think it's just talking about smart training. It's, yeah. it's gotten a little better, but we still have this sport where people are really, really big about killing and crushing and destroying every workout and doing all this beast mode stuff. Uh, 80-20 seems to have been thrown out the window in a lot of circles. And, and the ability to recover completely in between some really smart, well-designed training session seems to be a rare uh, aspect of people's training right now yeah do you use heart rate when you train i do in uh in i kind of use it as a spot tool i i use it when i'm unsure of my fitness but i have i i I have a pretty i'm pretty good with biofeedback i've always been able to, to predict my my splits within tenths i can predict my heart rate within a beat or two so I, I kind of intrinsically know it now, but I, I, use, I use it to re, recalibrate when I feel I need to. Have you been tested? Uh, what are we talking here, Richard? VO2. Uh, no, I have not. Okay. I actually have done very little, um, almost zero testing um, yeah. athletically. Well, you should. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just too, too stingy. Oh, God damn it, man. I mean, come, come on. You, got, you know what? You're going to be a pro in the sport. You've got to know, man. Uh, you do, and, and, but but I'm so you and I have a lot in in common, yeah. and I think we differ a little bit when it comes to what we do with the data. Well, I, I think I, I could change I, your I mind, think, but I always revert back to at the end of the day, 
I enjoy, like my body knows and I know and I trust that relationship I've built with it. And I, I love the data. And at, at the same time, I love to go, um, I guess, scientifically off heel, if that makes sense. Well, it doesn't. No, <laughs> no I don't agree with you. I, I, so here's the thing. You have to appreciate that I've spent 20 years testing athletes. And I've yet to come up with a conclusion that makes sense where it's okay to just trust your, your senses. I've never met an athlete. I mean, well, let me take that back. I've met athletes that have a pretty good, good intuition in respect to the cost of work. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happens is that you get familiar with the way your body responds to work. So yes. this is really more reactive than it's being proactive. And I talked about this at great length last show. And I'm really big on being proactive. So we were talking about overtraining last episode. And we were talking about the importance of tracking heart rate, if for no other reason but to get a sense of the cost of your labor mm-hmm. and to get a sense or get ahead of the potential for for overtraining. And there's other different metrics you can use to identify this, no question. But there's just no better feedback than heart rate in your training. All right. Maybe you misunderstood me a little bit. I track heart rate daily and nightly. Okay. Um, and I spot but you don't check. use it to develop your aerobic potential and you don't chase around uh, heart rate-specific training is what you're saying. I do. I do. But a lot of it is uh, I would say at least like 60% of my runs, I leave the heart rate at home and I, I go off feel for that. And part of it is because – I can, like I said, I can almost always tell you what it says, but I, I do spot check to make sure that I'm accurate. But I, I also can't stand racing with heart rate monitors on. Oh. Because of that, I want, I've, I've wanted to really dial in my ability to identify heart rate without seeing it, so that I, I can, I can accurately identify during races what I'm at and what I need to do. Right. Well, let me just say that I don't hold my people to the cross in respect to wearing a monitor when they're racing. Mm-hmm. But if they're using a monitor in their training day to day, if we've established some sound parameters for developing the training based on clinical analysis, I like to trust my numbers more than I like to trust my, my athletes opinions. Yeah, I understand that. And then once they've kind of really been, if you've been 18 weeks, 20 weeks in a training program where you are watching your heart rate relative to everything that you do, I think you're schooled well enough to get through the day in a race. And I don't want to see people freaking out when their heart rate's going through the roof. I think the reason that you do the heart rate thing to begin with is so that you are pushing your threshold into a place where you're capable of taking on those big hits when they come about in the race. So I'm okay with not wearing the monitor during a race. Mm-hmm. especially an obstacle race, because it's just so hard to get good, clean data when you're in that in that mix. It's not yeah. like being on a bike or running. So I'm with you in that regard, but I'll tell you what. You, you get a chance to see me. I'll test you. I won't charge you. I'm going to okay. do it as an investment in your career. <laughs> All right. It's on, it's on tape now. We have to stick with that. I will do it. Well, listen, I'm coming to Colorado. My goal is to be in Colorado for a clinic on the 11th and 12th of June. Okay. In Fort Collins, is where Miguel is hosting a, a clinic there for me, 
and I'm bringing my kit. I'm going to be doing testing there. So there's your free shot. All you got to you don't have to come to California. All you got to do is come to Fort Collins. I'm checking right now. I believe I'm standing up in a wedding that day. What time? Uh, in Wisconsin. <laughs> oh, all right, all right. Well, uh, look, I held it out there for you. That's also on tape. All right. Uh, real quick, I wanted to. Now you asked if I've been tested for VO2. Yeah, I'm, I'm in a wedding that day. Um, and that's that's what I was basing my some of my not needing the metrics on. What is the most important part of being tested for VO2 max? Because I'm I'm kind of a believer in that VO2 max is nothing more than an indicator. That's right. And You're so what, what, is, what, is, what benefits, what tangible do you, are you taking from that? What I do is I look at respiratory quotient, and I don't know if you know what that is. But respiratory quotient is an indication of the fat utilization versus sugar relative to heart rate all through the test. And so when I know what the caloric demands are and where those energies are coming from relative to cost, and then I start prescribing work based on that information. I could care less what your VO2 is. Okay, so, a, so you're using the, the accompanying data rather oh yeah. than... To me, okay. to me the, you know, the big number at the end of the day is fun and it's bragging rights and it, it points towards potential. But what I look for is meat and potatoes that resides in the middle of that test. I could tell you pretty much where your most efficient training pace will be relative to heart rate once I've tested you. Well, I like to hear that because I'm... I get tired of people throwing around VO2 max numbers that mean nothing. No, I don't care. I mean, I, I, I tell you what, I've got athletes I've tested that are pushing 85 VO2s, and they, they struggle to break a 230 marathon. Right. Seriously, I, I've seen a lot of it. So, which, by the way, points back towards mechanical efficiency. Mm-hmm. So, so you've got a great big engine, but it's geared all wrong because you're moving poorly. It doesn't matter. You're still going to suffer. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk, we, we talked Lance before, you know, he obviously ran it past his prime, but I think he was like 248 in the marathon. Right. By the way, my old partner, I used to test for the U.S. Postal Team, and he tested Lance Armstrong, and Lance blew like an 84 for him. Right. So, yeah, it goes to show there's some some other cogs in the chain there that need addressing. No question about it. Well, look, I'm looking forward to watching you race here uh, in June. And you get out this way, you got a free ticket. Excellent. And I'm looking forward to Monterey having a drink or two with you afterwards. Well, it's mandatory. Absolutely. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.